You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. It's good to have you today. It's good to have those watching online this morning. If you will, turn to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 26. While you're finding your place, if you are a member of Hyde Park, got something for you to do this morning, a task for you to complete. Uh, We are putting forward some deacons for the next year, but we need you to tell us which three you want to put forward. The slips are in the back. If you didn't already receive one, um, if you still need to get one, they're in the back. Make sure you just take a moment. If you've got one now, to go ahead and fill that out. Uh, You can drop it in any of the black boxes. There'll also be some people at the back of the room to collect those if you need to give it to them. Uh, Or if you don't have one, you can grab one in the welcome area before you leave today and take care of that if you would, please. We'd really appreciate that. Genesis chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven over the livestock and over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Pay attention to this verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Father, We pause in this moment to just be in awe of your power, of your glory, of your creativity. Father, the ability to to speak and out of the nothingness comes something. But Father, you're not impersonal. You're not off somewhere running the universe. You've not forgotten about us. Not only have you not forgotten, but you're very present. You're very near. You know the hairs on our head. You know the thoughts that are running through our mind right now. You know the contents of our heart. You know our failures. You know our successes. You know our days have been measured out, and you know when when that last day will come. And all of that is in the palm of your hand. It's an easy thing for you. Nothing is hard for you. And so, Father, this morning... More than anything else, we want to glorify and honor you. From the reality that you spoke everything into existence, Father, it brings us not only confidence and courage, but also it brings peace and purpose. So, Father, guide us in your word this morning, and may you be glorified. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I have always been, well, kind of really interested in technology, and it's incredible in my lifetime how far technology has come. So when I was a kid growing up and I would watch the Jetsons and I would see 
um, these flying vehicles, and I would hear Popular Mechanics magazine, which my dad had a subscription of, and I would, I would see on the covers of those magazines how one day we'll have cars that drive themselves. We would have watches on our arms that, you know, we could uh, do a whole lot more with than just tail time. Well, all, all that has come to fruition. All of that has become a reality in real time and space. But this whole idea of driverless cars, let me just confess this morning that to put me in a car that's driving itself is going to really be a check not only to my pride, but also to my confidence in technology. I'm not sure I'm ready for that yet. Because there's something about being in control of a car that I really like. Just ask my wife when we drive on vacation about who drives, who wants to drive most of the time. It's me. I've got this, yeah, I've got this issue. I just like, I like to drive and I like to be in control of the car. So the idea of me sitting in a passenger seat or in the back seat while this car drives itself through the middle of the city, I'm a little skeptical. But this, this idea of a driverless car brings together in that moment this whole concept of just how creative humanity is, just how amazing that humanity has the ability to pull resources together, uh, to build a, a, a chip or multiple chips, to have the ability to make decisions based on input and sensors that this car has on it as it drives down the street to be able to determine what is a danger and what is not, to be able to drive in the middle of the road, for someone to be able to program all of that and, and, and the car actually follow those commands. It is an incredible age of technology that we live in, you'd have to admit. The fact that you have a cell phone in your pocket that has incredible amounts of power, more power than, than when, I was in, when I was growing up. They would have rooms the size of this room filled with computer equipment to do a third what your phone can do. But this whole idea of driverless cars, I read an article this week. If you want to put that picture up on the screen, I'd appreciate it. I, I come across an article from San Francisco about how that city is really focusing on increasing the number of driverless cars. And the point of it is, is that the people who design this technology, on the one hand, they want to sell the technology, but on the other hand, they say that driverless cars, once they get them perfected, will actually be more efficient and safer than a human behind the wheel of that car. Now, again, I'm a little skeptical. I love technology. I like the idea but how close are we to that? Well, this particular car is one of those cars that's driverless. And this car was going down the streets of San Francisco, and it just happened to be a street where road construction was happening. And that road construction, they had it, they had it cordoned off with cones. You know how you know the deal. They've got workers all out in the street with flags, and you've got everything kind of roped off where they don't want your car to go. Well, guess where this driverless car went? Exactly where it wasn't supposed to go. Because apparently the driverless car doesn't really care anything about how many cones you put up and how many flags you put up and how much tape you put up. This car drives right down through the middle of wet concrete and gets lodged in it right there. And that was the end of its journey. What was interesting to me is the, the town manager, the city manager for San Francisco writing about this was talking about how that, that she was kind of implying she was surprised that this happened because, again, they put up all the cones and the flags and all the tape in other words, clearly marked. Now, part of that was to show that she'd been doing her job, but the other part is that is the realization that a driverless car doesn't care. Now, why is that? Why is it that every other human driver that was driving down that street knew not to go down where the cones were, but rather to stay over here in the road where they were directing you to go? It's the primary difference between you 
and the rest of the world. You see, on the one hand, when we look at that driverless car, we can, we can be amazed at the ability that humanity has to build such a device. And, and I am, I, look, one day we may be all coming into this parking lot with driverless cars. Great, no problem with that. But on the other side of this coin, we also see that no matter how much we advance in technology, there is something unique about humanity that sets you apart. The fact that when you look down that street, you know not to drive down that street. The, the technology, the people who own the, the company said, well, the car's got to learn that you're not supposed to go. And so it'll learn from this and we'll update all of our other cars and therefore the car won't go down. Well, what happens when the car comes down, sees the roadblock and it just stops in the middle of the road? That has happened also. Another problem they've had is, is when you drive down the road and you see fire trucks and police officers, you know to go around that. These driverless cars have been driving right into the middle of wreck scenes because they don't know you do. That's a gift that God has given you. It's something you were born with, and it's something that goes all the way back thousands of years to what we're going to look at this morning. Last week, I, I said to you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in that first verse of the entire canon of Scripture, we have this broad statement that simply says that everything that exists, exists because God called it, created it, formed it by the words of his mouth. So in verse 1, we have this far-reaching, massive statement. Now what we're going to look at today is, is what God did in each of those days, those creative acts, those moments where, where God speaks and out of nothing comes something. You see, in this moment of creation, and this is hard for all of us to get our minds around, but the reality is, is that when God stepped into this empty void and made the conscious choice that God had Trinity to create, there, there were no proteins or DNA. There was no molecules or neutrons or protons and electrons. There was simply nothingness in this space. And so God didn't step in and, and utilize what was already there to, to bring the universe to be. No, God in his infinite power simply speaks, and what was nothing now becomes something. And not only something, but now what we're going to see is how that God brings order, function, to the entire universe. Why is this important? I go back to what I said last week. What I said last week is there is a whole segment of our population, and maybe this includes you, but you have no idea why you're here. You have no idea what your purpose is in life. You have no idea. Is life just, just about getting up every day, working hard, earning a paycheck, going on a couple of vacations a year, and just doing that endlessly for 30, 40 years, then retire, and, and then live out a life of retirement, whatever that looks like, and then simply to die? Is, is that it? Young people, you are being told by society and a culture that they know what your life is about. They're telling you all kinds of things of why you're here and what your purposes are. And let me tell you that what you're hearing out there, not only is it confusing, but it's contradictory. They say one thing one day and another thing the next, and our young people are trying their best to navigate this broken world, trying to understand why they're here, what their purpose is. And unfortunately for many of them, and for many adults, they have decided there is no purpose. 
They have decided that whatever purpose there is, it must have to do with me having fun or me being rich or me being an influencer or me having my name up in lights. But when all that's gone and when all that's faded or when that doesn't happen, we lose our purpose. And when we lose our purpose, we are a people that are in serious, serious shape. Anxiety, depression, and for, and for many, unfortunately, they're coming to that place in their life where they're deciding that life, if life has no purpose and I have no purpose in the world, then what's the reason for me to continue on? Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you've never thought about the creation days as being able to speak into your life and give you hope and give you purpose. In times past when I had preached through this text, I would spend most of my time, the bulk of my time, basically arguing that creation, creationism, that, that God spoke, and I believe that God spoke, and I believe he created everything that there is in literal six 24-hour days. I believe that's what the text teaches. And listen, if you're approaching, if you're, if you're coming to church maybe for the first time, or you're tuning in this morning for the first time, or, or maybe you just started reading the Bible you may look at these opening verses and you go, well, that's a pretty nice fable. That's a pretty nice story. But this is not a story. This is an account of what God did to bring the entire universe into existence. And it's vitally important that we understand that. So in times past, I would make the argument for a, a six-day creationism versus an evolution, right? So the idea of evolution that, that over millions and millions and even billions of years, everything came to be on its own. That there was no God from the outside who spoke it into existence or had anything to say about it. Evolution of itself is very atheistic in its core in that there is no God. And if, he, if he, it does exist, it doesn't really matter because we have science that proves that it all just kind of came to be over vast periods of time. And the direct outflow of that is if it's all a cosmic accident, if it all just happened to be, then so are you. And if you are a cosmic accident, then where do you find purpose? Where do you find meaning in life? In fact, what happens after this life is over? Do I just go into a, a coffin? Do I just go into a grave and that's it? I cease to exist? These are all huge life questions. So in the past, I would argue a creationism model versus an evolution, but that's not what we're going to do today. I'm going I'm to hit that, but I'm, I'm not going to focus our attention on it because the reason I'm not is because that argument that used to be so prevalent in society is not really being argued anymore. It's not that it's just been accepted. It's just we've moved on to something else. And what we've moved on to is where do we find what is true? And where we find what is true is based on how we feel, based on our own judgment, based on what we determine is true. So the fact is, in society, you can believe in creationism. You can believe in evolution. You can believe that none of this really exists at all anyway. And that's fine with you as long as it doesn't conflict with me. So my point and while we're in Genesis, is to look not so much at what God did, but why he did it. Why did God step into this space, speak, and create? You see, I think the why is more important for our culture and where we are today than the what. And when we begin to understand why God did this, we begin to understand the model that God built here. We also begin to understand at the same time that the further we move away from that, the more we find chaos. So let's pick it up in verse 3. We're going to walk through these days of creation. We're going to walk through them rather quickly. And we're going to look at how not only did God speak, 
But God also gave purpose. He also provided boundaries for his creation. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Notice those first three words. And God said, remember Psalm 33. We looked at it last week where the psalmist, the poet, says that God is so powerful that all he has to do is speak and things come to be. And these verses 3 through 31, we're going to have God saying 14 times, God said. We're going to have God speaking 14 times. And I would argue that that's one of the most important parts of this entire set of verses, that God is speaking into his existence, is speaking into our existence and bringing about the total of creation. And on the first day, he says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Now, what is God doing on day one? Now, remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that earth was without form. It was without void. It was in chaos. Chaos not meaning that there was sin or, or anything like that. It was simply that the world had no function and it could not sustain life. So, so God not only spoke that into existence, but then God steps in and begins to bring order where there's chaos. He begins to bring function where there was no function. So God steps in and the first thing that he does is he says, let there be light. God turns the lights on. But there's always controversy with just about every aspect of Scripture, and this one's no less. It's okay if God doesn't create the sun and the moon and the stars till day four, which we will see in just a minute, then, then what is the source of the light that he's talking about? Because we understand the source of our light right now. That'd be the sun. I saw it come up this morning as I was driving in, that beautiful big ball as it was coming up in the sky and how beautiful that was. But God hasn't spoke that into existence yet. In this moment, there is light, but what is the source of the light? Well, this is my opinion. There's a lot of them. But the Bible teaches us over and over again from cover to cover that God himself is light. So let's imagine for a moment. We have the Godhead Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's never been a time that they did not exist. They are eternal. And I don't know how much space of time, because it's hard to even talk about time in relation to the eternal Godhead, but nonetheless, there was a point where the Godhead Trinity steps into this space and says, we're going to create. And the days of creation give us not only the what, but the why. And, and so in this moment, we have the Godhead Trinity, and we have this thing called earth. It was without form. It was void. It had chaos. It was covered in water. And God steps in and says there needs to be light. So I believe that God provided the Shekinah glory light for that moment. In other words, it was God himself that provided that light. I think it was God himself, his presence, his purity, his holiness, the very fact that he himself is light is where the light is emanating from in this moment. In the Bible, we see not only that the, the Bible tells us that God himself is light. We get over in the Gospel of John and we find out that Jesus says that he's the light of the world. We get all the way over in the book of Revelation, and we find out that in that final state, in that new city, the Bible tells us that the Son, the Godhead Trinity itself, is going to be the light for that city. Jesus, the God, the Father, is going to be the light. So it's not a foreign idea to consider that God himself is the light that is emanating in this moment, and his presence turns the light on. But there's something else happening here. Notice how God separates the light from the darkness. 
I believe the next thing we have is this globe, this unformed, unhabitable globe begins to turn. We have night and day divided. God being that light upon the planet at that moment and in all of the chaos, God's first act is not only to create, but to also provide light. And not only to provide light, but provide form and function to provide for what's coming later. Notice that the creator has the ability to call it what he wants. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. And evening and morning was the first day. Not only do we have light in the rotation of this earth, but I also think we have the beginning of what we understand to be time. Now, some theologians say that at the very first verse, in the beginning, is the mark of time, right? If you have a beginning, you're marking time. And I'm, I'm sure that is, I don't have any problem with that. But I think at this point, the way us as humans understand time, we have the rotation of the earth and we have the movement of something to happen in the morning and the evening. And God says that for the first time right here. Day two. Day one, we have lights turning on. We have a rotation of this planet. Day two, notice what he says in verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse, or if your translation says, a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So understanding Moses' day and how the ancients understood, well, their world. They believed that when they looked above, when they looked up, that there was a dome over the earth or over their existence, and that that dome was holding back water. And therefore, when they would pray for rain, when they would pray for God to bring rain, they would pray for the heavens to produce rain, the heavens being the atmosphere, the heavens being this dome holding back water. Now, we understand that in one sense, there's not a literal hard dome around the planet, but they weren't entirely wrong. You see, in our advancement of science, we understand that our planet has something that no other planet in our solar system has, not like ours. As a matter of fact, scientists are looking all over the cosmos to find a planet just like ours, a planet with an atmosphere, a planet with, a, with, a, with, a, with an ability to have within its atmosphere a, a place for life to be able to thrive. So what God did is he took the waters that were upon the deep separated those waters and used those waters to form an atmosphere around our planet. And in fact, in our atmosphere, there is water and moisture. And from that, we, we get the weather patterns, we get rain. But here in this moment, God separates that out and he provides this planet with the ability for life to thrive. You see, one of the reasons they're looking for life or one of the ways they're looking for life on Mars is water. And the idea is if we can find water, if we can find true liquid H2O, there's a good possibility that life will be there because where water is, life can thrive. No water, no life. So God, in his infinite glory and power, preparing the world for what's going to come next, he creates an atmosphere by which life can thrive. Day one, we have light. Day two, we have an atmosphere. Day three, look at this, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas and God saw that it was good. So the first part of day three is God focuses his attention on the surface of this planet. And when he looks at it, we have water basically encompassing the entire planet and God speaks 
and says, now I'm going to separate the water so that we can have a land mass and we can have the waters, the oceans, the rivers, the lakes gathered within its own boundaries. Because there was no way for the life that he's going to create to be able to thrive in a planet that was completely and totally covered with water. So he calls forth the dry land, and the waters are held in their place. You go to the beach, any beach, and you look at that vast ocean, and you're out there maybe on a boat, and you go out so far from land, this always makes me nervous. You go that far out from land where you can't see land, yeah, I get a little nervous about that. Again, it's a control issue. I've got issues. I get that. All right? So I'm out, out there on this boat in the middle of water. I can't see land. And you see the vastness of the ocean, how deep it is. We don't even know how deep it is. It's incredibly deep. And all the life that is there, when we look at that, and what really should happen, what really should happen is the next time you go deep sea fishing, look out at that ocean, and you should simply just worship God in that moment because those waters are held in that place. Do they come out of those places? Where, yeah, hurricanes come, push 20, 30-foot swells in. Yes, but what happens when the storm goes? They return back to the place that God ordained for them to be. I have a river right below the cabin that we get to go to in the mountains, and that river sometimes gets out of its banks. I've seen that river raging. But given enough time, guess what happens? It always returns back to the place that God, God ordained it to be. So God not only is creating, but he's, he's speaking order and function and form into this planet. But why is he doing it? We'll get to that in just a moment. So day one, we have lights turned on. Day, day two, we have an atmosphere. Day three, the first part of day three, we have land emerge and the oceans held where God calls them and establishes them to be. But God's not done on day three. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, Fruit-bearing tree or free, fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed is each according to their own kind on earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind. So when God allows land to be established and he, he harnesses the oceans and the bodies of water and puts them in their place, now he fills that space, that land with plants. Well, what's interesting is, is instead of God just speaking and creating, he says that the earth itself is going to bring forth. So in that moment, on the earth, on the land that God has established, he fills it with plants and trees and all the, all the plants that we know, but it comes forth from the ground as God intended it to be. And then he says within those plants, within those trees, within those plants, they have their own seed. They have the ability to propagate. They have the, the, the ability built within them to be able to have more plants and more plants and more plants thrive and grow. In an atmosphere that God has created that will sustain life, and on day three, he provides the land, and then he fills the land with seed-bearing plants. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Verse 14 Day four, this is the longest of the creative acts. He says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let, the, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Now, this is where we get into the contra contradiction possibly between day four and day one. 
So I said in day one, God turns the lights on. That light that is emanating, I believe, is emanating from him. And it is lighting this planet up, and this planet begins to turn. So we have the movement of time. But there was more work to be done, and God does it on day four. On day four, God, now get this, God speaks. Notice this, verse 11, God said, verse 14, I'm sorry, God said, let there be lights in the heavens. So what's happening? Psalm 33 says that God speaks. God speaks here and he hangs these massive, incredible stars and planets in place. Just how big is that? Well, for you mathematicians, you guys and you ladies are going to tune in right at this point. There are two trillion galaxies. That's that we know about. It's amazing. Every time we build a new powerful telescope and we look deeper into the expanse of space, we find out that we were wrong about how big it was. It's just massive. It's, it's on a scale that it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. Quite frankly, I can't even wrap my mind around two trillion galaxies. Now, galaxies being huge clusters of stars and planets. But get this. There is a minimum of 100 million stars in each galaxy. Oh, now you're doing the math. So there's 2 trillion galaxies and a minimum of 100, and 100 million stars and planets within each of those 2 trillion galaxies. Yeah, I just lost you. Yeah, I started reading that and I kind of started drooling out the side of my mouth. I couldn't make sense of it. That's some humongous number to the 10th, 100th power. I don't know. Some of you will tell me after the service because you're good at this stuff. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is, is that in this moment, on day four, all God has to do is simply speak. Now, I want to just offer to you at this moment that you're less in awe about God today than you've ever been. You're more in awe with Netflix, your cell phone, which you can stream online. But I'm telling you, folks, a God who has the power to speak and hang, hang that many stars and that many galaxies with that kind of order in the cosmos is a God worthy of your worship worthy of your all. You need to pause when you walk out of this place today and you see that blue sky. You need to pause and give him worship and praise for it. Tonight, when the, when the sun goes down and you look up at that sky and those stars are exactly where God ordained them to be, that have given humanity the ability to navigate this planet, to navigate the oceans, to look up and see the stars in the same place, you ought to give praise and awe and worship to God. Quit being so enthralled with technology. Lift up your eyes to the creation and see what your God, my Father, has done. It's worth your time. It's worth pausing. I think it'll make you feel a whole lot better, too, that when you peel your head at night, that all the worries and the stress of life, if we could just in that moment think of the expanse and the beauty of this creation from the, from the smallest rose, from the smallest honeybee to the biggest planet in the cosmos and everything in between, in that moment should bring out of a Christ follower all. And you know, we throw that word awesome around quite a bit, don't we? But there's really only one deserving of the attribute of awesome. And it's the one who has this power and this ability. Not only did he place those stars, and it helps us to understand seasons come, seasons go. How did the ancients understand when they were moving from one season to the next? How did they understand days, years, and time? Although I believe that time started at day one, here we're able to measure it easily and completely with the stars that God placed, the rising of the sun, the setting of the same 
we're able to see the phases of the moon and know what season of life we're in, to know our place in the cosmos, to see all of that and say, there's a God in heaven who called all this to be. And in verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. Uh, every time I read that, I was always thinking, you know, God, God, as he creates, has the ability to name it what he wants to, right? So he calls the, the light day, he calls the night, or the dark night, and, and, he, and he calls the land earth, and he calls the water gathered the seas. But then when we get to verse 16, wouldn't it have made sense for God to say the greater light is sun and the lesser light is the moon? We know the moon reflects the sun. But wouldn't it have made sense for God to say in that moment, at least as he's speaking to Moses, as he's speaking to Moses, inspiring Moses to write this through the power of the Holy Spirit, why didn't Moses just write down sun and moon? Here's why I think he didn't. Moses is writing this more than likely while they're in the wilderness wanderings. Why are they wandering through the wilderness? Because God had set them free from the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt. And if you remember, in Egypt, they have all these plethora of gods, but there were a couple of gods that really stuck out, the god of sun and moon. Ra is what they called him. And I think one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit maybe led Moses to not write that down is because as the Israelite people would hear this being read to them, Moses didn't want to remind them back of what the Egyptians were doing. He wanted them to focus on the greater light and the lesser light was spoken into existence by God himself. They are subject to him. So whatever the Egyptians believe, whatever they think about the cosmos, make sure you understand that, that God is the one who spoke it into existence. So the greater light and the lesser light, what we know to be the moon or the sun and the moon to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm, swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above so God created the great sea creatures and also the birds in the, in the atmosphere and the sky. So in other words, now in day five, we have God creating sea life and those life of the birds of those flying in the atmosphere. And he says, let it be filled with swarms of living creatures. Let the, the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves within the waters and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now look at verse 22, God blesses them and says to them, commands them as part of their created order, they are to multiply and to flourish and to basically recreate through the power that God has given each of those species to propagate their own species and to thrive. So God has built an atmosphere, he's provided light. He has, he has provided vegetation. He's separated the waters. He's done all this. Was, that, was the purpose of that to fill the oceans with fish? Was it, was it to fill the air with birds? That's part of it, but we're still not to the why yet. So God creates this incredible, diverse ecosystem where it all works together, where it all depends one upon the other. You have this incredible, diverse system where one species lives off of the other species and vice versa. And the ocean filled with incredible life, God spoke, and all of that came to be. And he gave them the ability by blessing them to multiply and to fill the earth. And then we get to day six. And on day six, 
God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. So we have the oceans filled with life. We have the air filled with life, birds. And then we have the land-bearing animals. I had the opportunity to go to, to Peru on several occasions when I was a previous church on mission trips to the Amazon jungle. And when I say we were beyond, uh, we were beyond, the, uh, beyond nowhere, we were beyond nowhere. We, there was a ministry in Iquitos, which is the only city you can fly to that has direct access to the Amazon River within Peru. So we fly to Iquitos and go to this little town and docked in the river was this large vessel that a guy had started ministry with. It was a Red Cross vessel. It could sleep about 40 people and we would do medical missions. So we would take dentists, doctors, nurses. We would board this ship and I took a team. I think the largest team I took was about 30 uh, and it was mostly teenagers, so yeah, that was back when I knew better. Uh, anyway, uh, tuck all these teenagers down to the Amazon jungle, and we're going to go do missions. So we're on this boat, and we, we set sail in the Amazon River. And I can remember being in that, on that river in the middle of the jungle at night, and you're down near the equator, so you don't have any light from the cities. You don't have any haze or anything. It's just crystal clear, and I could look up, and I could see the Milky Way itself. The things you saw in pictures, I could see in real space off the deck of that ship. And we would dock the ship and we would go into the jungle. We might walk two or three miles into the jungle, the Amazon jungle, and, and meet a village and then be able to do ministry there. And we're walking through the jungle. I'm hearing incredible, diverse animals all through the jungle. I'm hearing monkeys. I'm hearing birds. I'm seeing things I've never seen before. I'm even seeing bugs on the ground. It kind of freaked me out a little bit, but I've never seen before in my life. And the jungle was literally alive, no matter where you look. And did you know that there's so much life in the Amazon jungle, the Amazon basin, basin that there are species down there that we have never even discovered? That, that the scientists will go in there and they'll, they'll go looking for species and they'll find species that have never been documented, never been seen by human eyes, that God did all of that out of his incredible beauty and power. He spoke all of this and we don't even know it's there. We don't even know it exists. And all of our, well... All of our so-called knowledge and ability, there are lizards in that jungle we've never even seen with a naked eye. That's how incredibly powerful my father is. And then on this day, he speaks all of that into existence. So now we have, we have this planet. It has light. And then eventually God gives his light to those stars and the sun and the moon to be able to shine. We have an atmosphere with water where life can thrive. We have animals both in the ocean and in the air and on land. And so is, is, is the purpose in which God is doing all this, is the why because he just wanted to create all that or is there something left, something more? Well, there's something more. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and all that creeps upon the earth. So here we get to the, 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 the why. All that God did in that creative work, the beauty, the diversity, the, the incredible vastness of space, down to the animals in the ocean and the animals in the air, God put all that together for his prized creation you and I. God didn't have to create us. 
God wasn't compelled to need us. In, in, in eternity past, God wasn't up there. The Godhead Trinity wasn't wringing his hands. Oh, if we just had some human beings. It's not as though God had to create us. It's not as though God needed us. But out of his good love and out of his good power and out of his pure joy that it brought him to take some dirt, form it into a human being and breathe life into his prized creation. So did God do all this with you in mind? Could it be that that what the world is telling you that your life is meaningless, the world is telling you that there is no God, and if there is, it doesn't matter. Could it be that all the lies you've been told about why you're here, could it be that you've believed all of them? And that's exactly why you see the world the way you see it today. But if for a moment we could put that aside and begin to consider that, that God did all of this miraculous, beautiful, amazing work, that leaves us dumbfounded when we even try to talk about it, that God did that to bring us down to verse 26 where God, the Godhead Trinity, chooses to make the pinnacle of his creation humanity. And you, being the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, well, you, you have his attention. Not only do you have his attention now, but you had his attention light years ago. He knew you by name. He knew the age in which you would live. He knows the day of your birth and the day of your death. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what your biggest struggles are. And this world was created not only to sustain animal life and sea life and bird life and, and insects and all that, but God formed all of that to set you, his pinnacle of creation, right in the middle of it to represent him. Why do I say that? Notice what he says. Notice how in everything else he created, nowhere do we have these words. Our image. Make these humans in our image. Nowhere else do you see that. He didn't say that about the fish. He didn't say that about the livestock. He didn't say that about the birds. Only when we come to verse 26, we have the Godhead Trinity making a conscious choice, not because they needed to, but because they wanted to. They chose to make humanity. And they made us after his image. This Latin phrase, the imago Dei, that you are an image bearer. If you're here today for the first time, you've never been in church in your life, maybe you're watching online, you're not even sure you believe in God. You're not even sure that God exists. It does not matter. You bear the image of God because you are a human being. You were knitted together in your mother's womb. You have something about you that separates you from all other creation. We have the ability to create a car that drives itself, although not very well, but nonetheless, we have a car that drives itself. What does it mean that we bear the image of God? Well, first of all, in bearing the image of God, what this means is, is that we have something that's different from the rest of creation. One thing is that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is that when God breathed into Adam the Ruah, his very breath into a lump of clay, the, the word for Adam, man, is basically dirt man, right? 
And in essence, that's all we would have ever been without the breath of God. But God breathes into us, and in that moment, we begin to bear the image of God. That doesn't mean that we look like God and God looks like us. It doesn't mean that, that God and us share characteristics where we look the same. That's not what we're talking about. The Bible says that, that God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones like you and I have. So we're not talking about what God looks like. What we're talking about is we share characteristics that point to the creator. What are those? Well, number one, you have a soul spirit. That's part of the Imago Dei. You being sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, at the moment of conception, you become, well, a you. And there will never be another you like you. And part of you being you is the fact that you have a soul spirit, and it's this immaterial part of you. We can't go to the doctor and, and get a test to check on how our soul spirit is doing. It's the immaterial part. However, that part will absolutely, positively live forever in a state of consciousness, either in the presence of God or separated from Him for eternity. I want you to hear me very clearly. I want you to tune in right now. If you're thinking about lunch, put that aside for just a moment because I need you to hear this. The loved ones that you have stood by their graveside that have passed on, you stood by that graveside or, or maybe it was in a mausoleum or maybe it was an urn, or they chose cremation, whatever it was, whatever that situation was, don't you ever let anybody tell you or convince you that your loved one's life ended at that moment. Whatever moment they breathed the last breath on this planet, if they were in ICU by themselves, or whether they were in a terrible accident, no matter what it was, that person is still living because they are an image bearer, and as part of being an image bearer, we have a soul, spirit, an immaterial, eternal part of us that will live forever. And as such, so will you. The grave is not the end of you. So you have the image of God in you, and part of that is the soul spirit. You also have a moral compass. Now, you may have buried it. You may have rejected it. But you were born with an idea, an understanding of right and wrong. It's incredible. It's incredible that, that humanity has within them this understanding of there are certain things that are wrong and certain things that are right. And although our world and our culture is trying to erase all of those lines and to say that whatever is right for you can be right for you, that you get to determine that. The fact is, is there is a lawgiver, and he has set that in the hearts of mankind. Even if you reject the reality of God and his presence, you still have some shred of morality. For example... You read in the news where a child has been harmed, maybe the life of a child being taken through some heinous crime or act. Typically, whether you are a Christ follower or not, as a human being, something rises up inside of you and you say something has to be done. There is this cry for justice on the inside of you that says that is wrong. That child should have never had to endure that, and therefore somebody must be held accountable. You know what that is? That is the Imago Dei. That is testifying to the reality that you've been given something that the rest of creation has not. You have the ability to reason. You have the ability to, to be rational. You have the ability 
to take mathematics and figure things out. You, you have the ability to create. You have the ability to build. You have the ability to play a piano. Reagan is one of the best piano players I've ever heard. One of these days, we just need to turn him loose. He is a phenomenal musician. But every time he sits down at this keyboard or somebody sits down at those drums or guitar, you know what they're, you know what they're testifying of in that moment? The Imago Day. The ability to play notes of music, play it together, sing together, lead us in it. That is part of what it means to bear the image of God. The desire for fellowship, the desire to love, the desire to be with others. Now, we're going to look in the next couple of weeks when we get to the fall. We're going to see how the fall marred the image of God in us. We'll talk about that later. But for now, you have a desire to be around other people. Now, sometimes you'd rather be by yourself. I get that. But a love, a desire to commune. The Bible says that the Imago Dei has been given the responsibility of dominion and to subdue. What does that mean? That we've been given the, 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 the command by God to subdue and to have dominion over. That, that we're to provide leadership. We are to take God's resources and utilize them for the betterment of humanity. The ability to harness what God has created. To be able to plant fields, acres and acres and acres of fields of, of seed that will bear plants that will bear food. And now you can do it with this big machine that takes literally a day, whereas in years past, it would take hundreds and hundreds of people days and days and days. So, so humanity has taken the resources that God has given us, and we've built these machines, and we've built things to help humanity, well, live a more comfortable, effective life. But notice the first command that God gave to humanity. It says here, so verse 27 says, God created man in his own image, in his image he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, and here's the first command that God gives to humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Of all the things that God could have said, he says to his prized creation, the ones who bear his image, he says, now, Go be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have kids. We're going to find out that he means that within the context of marriage. We'll find that in a week's ahead. His design was one man, one woman coming together in marriage, and then their goal, purpose is to procreate, to have children. Now, it's at this point, anytime we talk about this, is that I always want to say that I know that for some of you, for whatever reason, in God's perfect will and God's perfect purpose is that he chose to not give you children or offspring. And I know that's a hurtful thing, and I know it's hard. And, and I know even as I read verses like this, it, it, it may bring pressure and pain in your life. And maybe you think you're, yourself as a failure, not at all. God's, God's blessing for this planet, for his prized creation, is that they would go and multiply. But if that is not within God's will for your life, then don't be beating yourself down because of that. Then, then invest your life in the kids that are around you. Invest your life in a school. Invest your life in adoption or foster care. There's all kinds of opportunities to be that blessing and to fulfill that. But don't think of yourself as less than. It just wasn't God's plan for your life. But here he says to humanity, your first command is to have children. 
Go have children. Children are a blessing. They, yes, they are a burden sometimes. I get that. But, but God says they are a blessing. You know why they're a blessing? You know why God gives us that command? Because of God's desire, if our purpose in life is to give God glory, then it would be understandable that God would want more people to bring him glory. So have children. The global birth rate right now, it's not something you might look much at, but I, I read an article about this. The global birth rate right now is at 2.1. Now, why does that matter? 2.1 is the absolute lowest you can go in birth rate and be able to replace those who are dying. So if you have a population of 300 million and your birth rate's 2.1, what that means is, is you're having just enough children to replace those who are dying. But if you go any lower, you'll be falling behind. For example, South Korea has a birth rate of 0.8. Now, what does that mean? That means given enough time, South Korea will no longer exist as a nation. They can't. They're not having any children. Japan, the same way. Japan's been in this situation for quite some time. And part of it was culturally, they didn't value children. Culturally, they were more, maybe more focused on a career than a child. But at the very beginning of creation to his Imago Day bearers, he says, the first command is to have children. Get married. This is a blessing. And then finally, God says, and we're not going to get to all of it, but if you jump down to verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything that God has created, very good. He placed his Imago Day bearers in the middle of what was very good, and he says to you, now enjoy the creation that I've made. Enjoy the flowers. Enjoy the mountains. Enjoy the beach. Enjoy that because this was all put together for you to give dominion over. But here's the problem, folks. We have forgotten that God did all of that on your behalf. And that is why our humanity is running towards everything in the world to try to fill that hole, trying to fill that hole up with something when God says, it's been me all along and I created you to seek after me, but yet you choose to deny. So if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for meaning, if your life is full of chaos, if your life is filled with chaos, look, part of the, the falling world is we live in a chaotic world. But for the Christ follower, peace, purpose, joy, an understanding of who you are and why you're here. If that's something that's missing in your life, well, the great thing about God is, as he says to you, if you'll return to me, my love and my grace, my mercy is sufficient for you. And, and, and the reason that God gives us a rebirth, the reason that when we talk about salvation, we talk about the new birth, is because of what the fall did to us and how that what Christ did on our behalf can restore that. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.